Hey, if you are joining with us this morning for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you are here. And we have been in a series together in the book of Acts. We've actually got uh, two more weeks after this week in the book of Acts, and then we'll be launching out in a new series in October. So look forward to that. The title of that series is going to be Human. And we're going to talk about what it means to be human. Who am I? And where am I? And why am I here? You know, so we'll be exploring some of those, those deep, deep questions. So that's coming up. But today we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. And I wanted to begin like this. So um, uh, last year, I was listening to NPR, and I heard an interview with the director of a film called We Need to Talk About Cosby. And uh, this was a, a black comedian and filmmaker, and he was making this film to explore this deep tension that he was feeling about Bill Cosby. On the one hand, grew up loving Bill Cosby, and Cosby did actually so much for the black community in terms of helping folks get jobs and in working for fairness within that industry, and of course, entertained so many of us all. I mean, I grew up in the 80s. That, like, was our family time with Cosby. And yet, on the other hand, uh, it turns out that Cosby was an abuser and a predator of the worst kind. And so he goes into this asking, like, how can you have somebody who does so much good and under, you know, under the surface, there be so much darkness? And, you know, that question is a question that many, many people have when they look at the church in America today. You know, um, there, there are so many different movements and uh, leaders that have done so much good. You think about Bill Hybels and Willow Creek or Brian Johnson and Hillsong or Mark Driscoll and Acts 29 and Mars Hill and, and so many different movements that have arisen up and they've, lives have been transformed and people have come to Jesus and there's been these brilliant uh, teachers and wordsmiths and yet it comes out at some point that there was darkness underneath the surface and that there was abuse and predatorial behavior. And you just think, how and why and how does this add up? And many people who have been impacted by these kind of ministries have their questions like, like was it real? Uh, were these people, to, were they fake in the beginning? Was their message fake? And if I can't believe their life, how can I believe their message? And I think in, in many ways, this kind of thing has led to a crisis of leadership and of disillusionment uh, that is happening in the Christian church today. There's a, there's a phrase I heard this week that I've never heard before. And, you know, there was hashtag me too, and then there was hashtag church too. And recently the phrase I heard was church hurt. And what church hurt was about was not so much you know, people have been hurt by the dramatic scandals in the Catholic Church with pedophile priests and so on and so forth. It, it was more like people who have been hurt by more low-grade spiritual abuse. People who in the name of God were coercive or manipulative or abusive in some way, and people have just been hurt by the church. And this kind of thing, when people experience it oftentimes it leads people to become more disillusioned and they begin to hold the church at arm's length. And maybe some of you are in that place today. 
Maybe there's been some time in your own life where you were hurt by the church or you were hurt by one of the leaders in the church and you haven't given up on God, but you have one foot out of the church because you're like, I don't know if I can, tr like I can trust God, but I don't know about this human institution and these human leaders. And, and there's just questions that many people have. There's hesitancy, there's cynicism, there's suspicion when it comes to leadership within the church. And the text that we're looking at today actually addresses this issue head on. In the passage that we're going to be looking at today in the book of Acts, Paul actually addresses a group of Christian leaders, and he charges them and us with the responsibility to lead in a way that is God-honoring and faithful to Jesus. But what does that look like, and what does that mean? And how can we become better and faithful leaders? Now, let me just press this a little bit further and kind of just say, look, you know, of, of course, um, I play a unique role within this community. I'm the senior pastor. And there are elders within this church family. But, you know, there are other types of leaders within this church. And some of you even, you hold positions of leadership. You have responsibility over people in a classroom or over children at home, or maybe over uh, you, 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 you manage a team or uh, you're you know, at work, or maybe you've got athletes that you're coaching, you know? And there's all kinds of spheres and leadership and responsibility where you actually have sway over people's lives. And actually the things that, pe that Paul discusses here in this text is helpful, I think, for all of us who want to seek to grow into being better and more faithful leaders, both within the church as well as outside of the church. And so here's what I want to do is I want to invite you to enter with me into this passage and into Paul's little lecture on leadership. And let's just set it in its context. So uh, in the passage that we're looking at, um, it's Acts chapter 20. And Acts chapter 20, if you're taking notes, follows on the heels of Acts chapter 19. So it's a brilliant, you know, insight. But in Acts 19, Paul was in Ephesus. He planted a church, actually a number of house churches, started this dramatic gospel movement, was there for three years, uh, just, and the, the thing just blew up, and people were coming to Christ, and there was riots happening, and churches being planted, and big bonfires, you know, being fed, you know, the flames being fed by uh, magical scrolls that people were throwing out, and it was just like this big, this big work. And one of the things Paul did while he was there was he established leaders, but then he got to the end and he left and he traveled around over the next few months uh, to a number of cities trying to fundraise uh, for famine-stricken Christians down in Jerusalem. And so he is actually on his way to Jerusalem and he's at this place where he feels called into a new season. He's not going to be in Ephesus anymore. And so what does he do? He gathers around himself the elders, the leaders of the church, and he charges them on how to care well for the church. And what's interesting to me is he begins his lecture, his teaching, not with their responsibility, but with his own example. And look at how it, how it begins. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. It's interesting, Paul is gonna remind them of the kind of leader he was and in that reminder, he doesn't begin with his teaching, but with his life, how he lived among them. And how did he live among them? 
He said, well, from the first day I set foot in Asia, I was serving the Lord with humility and with tears. There was deep vulnerability. This was a man who was not afraid to wear his own feelings on his sleeve, his heart on his sleeve. And with trials, he was also a man of great fortitude. He endured under hardship and trials. He said, that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And so Paul turns to his life and he says, look, you know how I lived among you. And then after noticing his teaching, I mean, his life, he turns us to his teaching. And you remember, we talked about this last week, when Paul was in Ephesus, he spent a large amount of time teaching. In fact, the text tells us that six days a week, Paul would teach for four hours a day over the course of three years. That is 3,120 hours of teaching from the Apostle Paul. And what I would give just to give one hour of listening to that kind of instruction. I mean, could you imagine? I remember years ago, I used to think, you know, well, the early church, you know, they were kind of naive people. They didn't really have quite all the knowledge that we have today. No, these people were well-educated in the gospel. Paul spent three years with them. And listen to how he describes his teaching. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I love that. That's the heart of a pastor, of a leader. I just want to be helpful to you. I want this to be profitable to you. I want to be clear. I want to be direct. And I want to be applicable. He says, I I, I didn't hold back anything that was profitable. And I was teaching you in public in the school of Tyrannus and from house to house, he would in the evenings go to different houses. And what was the core of his message? Well, he says this, it was Jesus, testifying to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was so comprehensive in his teaching that down in verse 27, he was able to say this. He was able to say, therefore, I testify to you that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Incidentally, it's this text that has inspired me to launch a Through the Bible teaching podcast that uh, you can actually have access to if you're interested. But I have this desire before I leave this place, which I hope will be a very, very long time from now. But I, I, I want to do, I want to teach through the whole Bible. And I can't do it here, but I can at least do it on podcasts and we can get in the script. But, but this is, Paul wanted to teach the full counsel of God. Leave no theological stone unturned. Uh, leave no passage unexplored. And, and see how every passage ultimately points to Jesus. This is what Paul was all about, disclosing for them the true knowledge and the full counsel of God. And so Paul, when he's looking back on his leadership, he highlights his life and his teaching. But now he says this. He says, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, which is basically saying, God has called me into a new ministry. My previous, my previous season was here in Ephesus, but now I'm called into a new place, and I don't know what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Just kind of love Paul. Paul's just like, look, I don't know what's going to happen in Jerusalem, but God has called me to go there. And this is the only thing I know is that when I go there, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be imprisoned. And Paul knew afflictions and imprisonment. This was not naivety. 
He had been through darkness in his own soul and life, and he was willing to endure it again. Why? Well, he says this, I do not count my life of any value or of precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He had a clear sense of his calling and purpose and what God had given him to be about. But now he turns to these leaders and he says, now I want to talk to you about what God has called you to do, about what God has called you to be about. And, um, and so he brings these, these leaders together and he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Now, Paul is speaking to these elders about a very specific and a particular ministry and role in leadership that they had. Uh, he uses the word elders to describe this group. In this text, it's the word overseers. An elder is drawn from the, the world of first century synagogue life. The, the Jewish leaders in the synagogue were called elders. And uh, overseer is drawn from the Greco-Roman world. Uh, those who managed estates and managed large businesses were called overseers. And Paul takes these two terms that clearly apply to leadership, and he says, God has made you leaders of the whole flock. And listen, this is a definition of what an elder or an overseer is. It is a leader in God's church who has been made responsible for the spiritual health and well-being of a local church. And in this church, we have elders, we have overseers that are responsible for the spiritual health and well-being of this local church. But listen, elder and overseer is not the only one who has responsibility in God's church. There are some of you who have a variety of different places and spaces where you have been invited to lead. If you have anyone following you, if there's anybody who's sort of like, here's your voice and there's little sheep that, you know, hear your voice and follow you, you have a shepherding role. You have a role of leadership in some arena. Some, it might be in children's ministry. You're like, those kids don't follow me. I know, I know. Um, it might be your children at home. It might be uh, you're a youth leader in the youth ministry or you lead in Celebrate Recovery or the Women's Bible Center, any number, a uh, home group or something. But there are different areas of responsibility that Jesus gives to us. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just in the church that we exert leadership. Um, some of you are leaders in your business, you're leaders at a school, you're leaders in government. Um, uh, you've got people that follow you, people that listen to you. You have leadership, and it's a calling from God. Uh, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. You know, there's not this dichotomy between the paid, you know, clergy up here and then the rest of the poor people in here. No, God has called us all into the work of ministry. You have calling in your life. And so I want you to notice, though, what he's, he's teaching us in this passage. He says, the Holy Spirit, to these elders, the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. Earlier he said, God, or the Holy Spirit is constraining me to go to Jerusalem. I know my calling from God. This is your calling from God. In other words, let's just say this. It is leadership in a local church is God's idea. God calls leaders in a church to lead. 
And of course, this is something you know to be true, right? We all need leaders. And, and I think, I think for, for, for many of us, you know, when you come to a text like this, maybe there's some tension that begins to surface in your own heart and life as you think about this. Because on the one hand, you know, on the one hand, we know we need leaders. You know, I was listening to a lecture this week by the philosopher and orator uh, Cornell West. It was a lecture he gave at a university campus. And he, he opens... He opened with this statement that I thought was a great description of what Christian leadership is in its essence. And look at what he says. He says, I am who I am today because someone loved me. They cared for me. And you are who you are because somebody loved you, tended to you, and sacrificed for you. And friends, this is what Christian leadership is in its essence. It is when you have some responsibility for someone that you tend, that you care for, that you sacrifice for, and they are becoming who they are because of your investment in their life. Don't you see, leadership is a big idea. And so on the one hand, we, we know, I, I think all of us knows that leadership is incredibly, it's incredibly important in our lives. You know, without good, reliable, faithful, loving leadership, without faithful shepherds, you know, the classroom suffers. You know, the management team at the office suffers. You know, um, the, 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 the nation suffers without good, faithful leaders. The church suffers, youth ministry suffers, children's ministry suffers without good leaders. The church needs leaders. And so we know this, for our own growth and maturity as followers of Jesus, you know you need the voice of other people in your life, right? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a leader in this context. You know, I'm, you know, a pastor, teacher. But it doesn't mean I don't have people that I also need in my life that I follow. You know, this week I was at an elder meeting and there was something I was kind of like wrestling over with, you know, my schedule coming up. And, and I'd realized, I'm like, I haven't even really talked to the elders about this. And so I just opened up. I said, hey, you know, I, I've got these things coming up. Do you guys think I should do this? What do you guys think? And what was that? I'm saying, look, lead me. Give me wisdom. Give me guidance. Uh, sometimes I'll walk into John Stuther's office, you know, a Pastor John. I'll say, John, you know, I mean, in one context, I'm his boss. I'm over him. But in another context, I will go sit myself under him. And I'll say, John, you know, here's what's happening. Give me some wisdom. Guide me. I think all of us know we are sheep often in need of some help in getting to the greener pastures. Amen. And so, on the one hand, we know we need leaders, but on the other hand, we are suspicious of leaders. Can I get a witness? <laughs> we inhabit a culture that has been described by the philosophers as being inflicted by a hermeneutic of suspicion. And this came from the masters of suspicion, you know, Freud and Marx and Nietzsche, you know, and, and what, what is the hermeneutic of suspicion? It's reading people through a suspicious lens. Why did you do that? I know why you did that. You're trying to get something from me. You want my money. You want my time. You want to use me. You know, you're like, well, no, I was just inviting you to my house for dinner. You know, it's like, but, but we view people through a lens of suspicion. And we're always like, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust you. And of course, we're in a, a market-driven culture and society, right? 
And, and we have good reason for thinking that people are trying to pull a fast one on us. They're, just, they're spinning everything because they want us to get to buy some product that they're selling. And the politicians do this, and those who have eyes to see and ears to hear know this. And we're like, Christian leaders do this. And of course, there's no end, you know, in our, in our culture of story after story of leaders who have used those dangerous statements. God put this on my heart. God told me. God was leading me. God gave me this word for you. And then you're, you're starting to like pull through. You're like, I think you're trying to control me. I think you're trying to manipulate me and coerce me. And this sort of thing is rampant within religious communities, and it's so easily abused. And so on the one hand, it's like we know we need leaders. We know that the, the, the nation needs leaders. The world needs leaders. The church needs good leaders. On the other hand, we, 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 we're suspicious and we're cynical. And look, if you've gotten involved in church leadership, you know, and you've gotten to see behind the curtain in an organization, sometimes you feel like, you know, the Wizard of Oz, you know, Dorothy and, you know, the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and so on. They, they go, you know, they're off to see the wizard. Why? Well, they, the wizard's got the answers. The wizard's going to help us. And then they get there, and it's like they look behind the curtain, and they find out the wizard is just a scared and insecure little man who's just as lost as they are. And you're like, that happens, and I just look, I look behind there. They're just as lost as I am. And so, so we're suspicious. And what exacerbates this tension, our need for leaders, but we're suspicious of leaders, is what Paul says next. Because Paul is going to highlight a problem in the church that exacerbates our own suspicion of leaders. Here's what he says. He says, look, there are not just shepherds in the church, there are also fierce wolves. He puts it like this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Wait, where will the fierce wolves? They'll come in among you. Not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, he says, be alert. In other words, there are wolves about in the church. But here's the thing. Wolves rarely look like wolves. That's creepy, right? Like that's gonna, that's gonna give you. But wolves rarely look like wolves. Jesus said sometimes they come to you in sheep's clothing. The prophet Ezekiel indicated that sometimes they come to you in shepherd's clothing. So sometimes... You know, they come into the body, but they don't, they don't look like a wolf. Now, that doesn't mean that they're always difficult to spot. There is a, a telltale sign for at least some wolves. Uh, some wolves clearly twist the truth. And, and so, for example, kind of the classic example, I, I think, you know, in American history is um, of this sort of thing was Joseph Smith back in the 19th century, who, you know, was supposedly praying to God and asked God, God, you know, show me the true church. And apparently God told him, everyone's off base, except Joseph for you. And the movement you're going to start, it's going to be the right one. And listen, if somebody comes and they give you a version of Christianity that is out of step 
with historic Christianity that is out of step with the great tradition embodied in the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. If somebody comes and says, look, no, they've got it all wrong. The real thing is this. They are not preaching Christianity. Listen, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. It's not that the church went off the rails for 1,800 years. If somebody is telling you that, they're, they're, they're selling you a bridge to literally nowhere, and they're distorting the truth. And so he says, look, yeah, some people come in, and they begin to distort the truth. But here's where it gets tricky. Sometimes they don't teach heresy. They actually teach the truth. Sometimes wolves are not teaching heresy, they're actually teaching the truth. You know, um, and, and we should point out, on the other hand, sometimes, in fact, um, in every case, pastors will get some things wrong. Now, I'm just going to tell you a little dirty little secret. Um, I heard it, my uh, theological mentor from afar named N.T. Wright say this. He said, look, he said, I know that at any given point, I, at least 20% of what I believe is wrong. The problem is, I don't know which 20% it is, or else I could correct it and teach something else. And it's just the case that every pastor, every ministry, every teacher, including myself, has got some things wrong. That's why there's so many different denominations. And um, when you get a pastor that says, I have everything right, and every other version of Christianity out there, I'm going to start shooting at, and I'm going to start going after because they're heresies, you know, heretics. And it's like, whoa, easy, bro. You've got some things wrong too. It's the main things that are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things we want to major on the majors, and the major is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the Apostles' Creed. It's the Nicene Creed. But listen, here's the crazy thing about wolves. Sometimes wolves come in, and they don't teach heresy. They actually teach the truth. In fact, some wolves are winsome and charismatic leaders. They have large and influential churches and mass followings. Some are great Bible teachers. Some even have global ministries that are making a defense of the Christian faith, and yet, behind closed doors, they are a wolf. In 2020, on the heels of his death, Christianity Today released a story disclosing all of this dark inner world and abuse that was happening in the life of a very well-known great evangelist and apologist whose name was Ravi Zacharias. And what looked on the surface like an influential, a charismatic, a, a very effective spiritual leader and shepherd, underneath the surface was a wolf in sheep's clothing that was engaged in predatorial behavior of the absolute worst kind, where you used your position and your spiritual authority to coerce and manipulate and abuse. And you say, well, well, well this gets confusing then. Like, if you've got some wolves who are, you know, uh, they, they're, they're teaching truth, but yet they're, they're, and you've got some shepherds, you know, that are teaching, like, how do you know the difference between a shepherd and a wolf? or in the, the words of 21st century kind of like business lingo, how do you tell the difference between a healthy leader and a toxic leader? Somebody who's gonna do damage, you know, to the organization and the people's lives all around. Listen, here I think in our text is the core, the key distinction between the shepherd and the wolf. 
It's this. The shepherd feeds the sheep. The wolf feeds on the sheep. Or put it like this. The shepherd looks out at the flock under their care. Whether it be elders looking out over a local church, uh, small group leaders, youth leaders, kids leaders, looking over the, the, the kids, there, whether it be at work, you know, a management team, a classroom, they look at over their little flock and what they see is a sacred trust. This is the flock for whom Christ died. God gave his blood for this group. These are precious people. They're a sacred trust. And I have a responsibility to love, to tend, to care for this people. They look out and they see a sacred trust when they see sheep. The wolf looks out and sees only a nice meal and a wool coat. Something to feed themselves. Now, Sometimes this is blatant and obvious, right? You know, there's uh, sex, money, and power. And of course, uh, sometimes there's this insatiable appetite for any one of those things. And you can use spiritual authority in order to satiate your deep desire for sex and money and power. And church leaders and leaders out in the culture are doing it all the time. And look, there is a hot place in hell for those who use the name of God or spiritual authority to take advantage of and abuse God's sheep. So there is the blatant and the obvious ways. But I want to just press this a little bit further, and I want to talk about some more subtle and nuanced ways. Because... You know, um, in some ways, if you have been in a position of leadership, you've been given some responsibility and authority. You remember what, uh, what's in uh, uh, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar? Do you remember power corrupts and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely, right? It's a dangerous thing to give a child, a son or daughter of Adam, you know, power over people's lives. And listen, there may be a little wolf tendencies in the heart of us all. And let me just suggest some ways. You know, sometimes you can use a leadership position to feed your ego or your need to be needed or your need to be respected or your need to be liked or your need to look good or your need to control or have some power over other people. Uh, sometimes in, in church contexts, especially churches that have been around for ages, you know, and there, there's power, there's politics in churches, and what is that about? It's about somebody saying, look, you know, I, I, I'm losing my power and authority that I had over, you know, the coffee ministry or something, you know, something like, and how dare you? And all of a sudden, everyone's, it's like, whoa, easy, like, what is this about for you anyway? Is this about serving and loving, feeding people or is this about feeding some deep psychological, unmet, emotional, you know, brokenness in your own heart? You know, you've got daddy issues and you're working them out at church, you know? And, and, and so, so I, I think we would all do well, myself included. I mean, I, I preach this message to myself first. And to any of us in this room who have some modicum of leadership within this community, 
to be on guard. You know, he says, beware of the wolves, beware of the people that come and twist things. And part of that involves being aware of those tendencies within yourself. You say, well, how can we chart a different course, though? You know, listen, one of the concerns I, I had as I was studying this text, one of the things I was thinking about is I think when you're feeling cynical and disillusioned by the church, which, you know, there's so much reason for you to feel that way. And I know, like, if you're under 40 years old, you, you've probably got, like, a good bit of that just looking at things play out in the culture. And you're just like, I don't, you know. And, and listen, the church needs you. Young people, the church needs you. Like the future of the church is in the hands of the next generation. And so if, if you can only approach the church with disenfranchisement and disillusionment and cynicism, you will never step into the church to engage in the church. But I want to suggest there is a different way of being. There's a different path forward. There's a different path that we can chart, that churches all over, actually, I mean, there's tons of dysfunctional places. There are actually a lot of really good, healthy leaders out there. And many of you have been blessed by them and your life has been changed by them. Thank God for them. And so we wanna see our own community grow in that direction. And if we're gonna do that, I wanna suggest four brief things that we need to do. Now, you're like, wait a second, was that, did you just kind of like do a fast one on me? You just had a lengthy introduction. Now we're launching into a four-point sermon. <laughs> and yeah, I was inspired by Paul's four-hour lectures. <laughs> and so we're just going. No, these are brief, very, very brief, but important. Number one, if we are gonna grow into more faithful leaders in whatever venue you might be leading in. Number one, pay attention to your own soul. You know, it it, it was um, Ruth Haley Barton who said, the greatest gift we will give to people who we lead is our own transforming selves. You know, um, there's a a book I I have on my shelf um, that I take out and I reread every now and again. It's uh, it's by an old British preacher whose name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And chapter one in that book, it's called Lectures to My Students. It's all about pastoral ministry. And chapter one is on the minister's self-watch. And in there, he quotes an old um, Puritan, Robert Murray McSheen, who said, it is not great talent that God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. And it's a healthy question to ask, how much is my own life being conformed to the image of Christ? Am I paying attention to wolf tendencies in my own? Like, I have needs, so do you. But we can't use people simply to feed deep wounds that ultimately only God can heal. And so pay attention to your own soul. Paul puts it like this. Pay careful attention to yourselves. I I love that the very first exhortation he gives to this group of leaders is look out for yourself. Or in the words of Jesus, physician, heal yourself. Number one, or number two, pay attention to the flock. Attend to the needs 
of those that God has given you responsible care over, children in a home, students in a classroom, uh, a management team you're, you're, you're managing, what, an organization you're running, whatever it, it, it be, you know, small group you're leading in church, house, house group or whatever, attend to the needs that are in the room. Paul puts it like this, pay close, close attention to yourselves and to all of the flock. Attend to the needs of the people around you. And again, I know because a lot of us, we carry wounds and we carry hurts and we've got stuff going on in our own life that sometimes you can get so, you know, like wrapped up in your own junk that it can, it can actually cause whatever's going on in the life of people around you for you to miss because you're kind of in this narcissistic loop. And he says, look, you gotta get out of that and attend to the needs of the people around you. Friends, if we are gonna grow into a community of people that have solid leadership in the decades ahead, it's gonna mean, and I'm looking like at our high school students right here, like you have to attend to people around you. Think about needs around you. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has called you and he says his overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And the sense of that is these are precious people for whom Christ died. Thirdly, don't lead alone. You know, it's significant that Paul calls a community of elders to shepherd this church. And everywhere Paul goes and he establishes elders in the church, it is always elders in the plural, and never elder in the singular. And you need to know, you know, if you're kind of new to this community, I don't lead this church by myself. I'm a part of a community. I'm part of a team of elders that collaborate to lead this church. And I'm accountable to that group of elders. And uh, they do reviews on me annually. And, um, and, and I recognize, you know, I manage our staff team and our elders are responsible to hold me accountable. And of course, any wise leader in any venue of leadership recognizes like you, you need others who can speak into your life. Uh, we live in such an individualistic, autonomous culture. Like we're like, oh no, I'll do it my way. No, like submit one to another. Recognize the voice of others in your own life. Don't lead alone. And then finally, lean into God's grace. You know, I was thinking about um, this moment. We'll close with this. And uh, actually, our band can come on up right now. You know, come on up, guys. But... Like, how intimidating... Would it be if uh, you were going to go pastor the church that the Apostle Paul had been pastoring for the last three years? Like, you know, you've heard the term, uh, like, big shoes to fill. <laughs> like, this is literally the most effective evangelist and church planner, uh, the most brilliant theological mind in the history of the church. You know, responsible, you know, for the architecture and growth of the early Christian movement, uh, written all these letters that have, like, literally shaped and formed church history and, 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 and Western history in the world, you know, and you're like, and you get to step into his shoes. You're like, no, 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 no. And I feel intimidated, wouldn't you? And I feel like, oh, well, I can't, I can't do that. And then, and then you'd feel like, I have imposter syndrome. Many of these people had only been Christians for probably two or three years since Paul had been there. 
and now I'm leading? Like, I don't, I can't do that. I, and I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know many pastors who at some point in their life don't feel imposter syndrome, who feel like, I, I'm not, like, I'm not worthy of this task. I can't do this. And if you've stepped out in any realm of leadership, there have been moments where you have felt in over your heads, right? And I love the final word that Paul speaks over this group. He says this to them. He says, and now, here's what I'm going to leave you with. Here's, here's how, here, here's like, here's my final thing. He says this, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, it doesn't all depend on you. At some point, people who you lead, I mean, if you're a parent, you've got kids in the home that you've been trying to shepherd and lead, like, at some point, you have to commend them to God and to God's grace and recognize, like, there's stuff that's outside of my control that only God can do. And, and, and listen, if you release control of your own life, of your own leadership, of the people you lead into God's hands, he will not let you down. Those hands are fully capable of carrying you and of carrying your burdens and carrying your problems. You can trust God. He says, I commend you to God and to his grace. God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved, infinite ocean of love has been poured out on you in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, this whole thing, like the future of this church, you know, this whole thing depends not on you, and it doesn't depend on me, and it doesn't depend upon our elders. It depends upon the great shepherd of this church, namely Jesus, who has given himself fully and unreservedly for his sheep. And that's very, very good news.